Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where if you uh, started with episode one, you know that we're taking uh, a look at the life and the teachings of Jesus through the eyes of the Gospel of John with a Wabi Sabi twist. Remember, Wabi Sabi is a Japanese expression which means being able to find beauty in imperfect things and intrinsic beauty. That's the way I believe Jesus treated people, and we'll see that clearly in this episode a little bit later. This is season one, episode four, and this episode is on the first followers. So we're still in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting with verse 35 if you want to follow along in your own Bible or your Bible app. But before we get to that, let me just encourage you, if you're enjoying this podcast, if it's helping you gain a better understanding of Scripture, then please follow Gospel Wabi Sabi. Uh, Give it a good review and tell one of your friends about it this week. That would really help us as I hope uh, the word would begin to spread. John 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Well, episode three was all about John the Baptist, who was a different John than the the John who's the author of this gospel. I'm not going to go back and repeat what we said about John the Baptist, except this last little vignette goes to his second encounter with Jesus on the next day. Once again, John the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, we're told specifically that two of his own disciples were with him. Now, remember, John the Baptist was hugely popular. He had his own following, his own posse, his own inner circle. And here he is basically saying to his own disciples, the cream of the crop, from now on, go and follow that guy. Go and follow him. As in the first part of chapter 1, this little story continues to show us his humility, that he was willing to give his disciples away. And he did so because he knew he was the moon and Jesus was the sun. At his best, John the Baptist knew he was only reflecting the greater light of Jesus And he loved his own disciples enough to want the best for them. So the two followers did, one named Andrew and one unnamed. They took John's words literally and just started walking behind Jesus, following at a respectful distance. This could almost be comical. I mean, if Jesus hesitated, did they hesitate? If he walked slower or faster or stopped, did they mimic his pace? I can almost see Jesus kind of messing with them, start skipping down the road just to see what they would do. All we're told, though, is that they followed at a distance, I think sort of like lost puppies. Eventually, Jesus turns around and speaks to them. And what does he say? Does Jesus say, what are you knuckleheads doing? Either come up or go away? No. For me, this is kind of a wabi-sabi moment. Because Jesus simply asks a basic question with no irritation in his voice. What do you want? What do you want? What a great question. Jesus was so good at asking questions. What are you looking for? What are you looking for in life? Is it security, purpose, peace, wholeness, love? What is it that you want? Are you going through life aimlessly? Do you have a direction? Are you just kind of drifting with the current? 
we could come up with a long list of things people might be looking to uh, to try to to try to fill that space in their life. And so, in order to 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 really go forward, we need good clarifying questions, questions that cut through the fog that force us to think. When I do marriage counseling, the very first question I usually ask the couple is this: Do you want a marriage counselor or a divorce counselor? Usually takes them by surprise, and that's good. That's intentional. The question forces them to make a decision from the onset. It clarifies why are we meeting together, marriage counselor or divorce counselor. Choose, because those are two completely different pathways. What do you want? Jesus is asking you that question. The purpose of these stories recorded and preserved for us in the Gospels is to really get us to think about your life and where you're headed, to think about what you value, what you really believe in. Not just the words that you mouth, but what is it you truly want from knowing Jesus, from encountering him? Are you clear about that? Because here's the key. Jesus is ready to meet us at the point of our deepest need. Jesus is ready to meet us at the point of our deepest need. Do you know what you really want from Jesus? The two guys respond respectfully. They say, Rabbi, teacher, sensei. They are asking a surprising question. They, they kind of say, where do you live? It's a little hard to follow. Uh, you know, what do you want followed by where do you live? What they're really asking is, and what that phrase really means is, is it okay if we go home with you? Is it okay if we kind of hang out with you for a while? This is a very subtle interchange. They're not sure if they're doing the right thing. John says we should, but we're not convinced. They value John the Baptist. They value his input, but they're not going to just follow his advice blindly. They're going to have to make their own decision, and they're just not sure about who this Jesus guy really is. Jesus says something so great here. He says what Jesus always says to people who are kind of following at a distance people who are unsure, people who are maybe a little hesitant. He says, come and see. Come and see. Come and check me out. Come walk with me. Come and see if I'm the real thing. See if I'm authentic. See if my words match up with my actions. Just come and see. You see, doubt is not a bad thing. Someone who accepts Jesus blindly is very likely to become disenchanted very early on and bail out quickly wrestling with who Jesus is, thinking it through, like going through the Gospel of John in a podcast like this one. That's a healthy step in the journey of faith. We're told they stayed with Jesus all day, all day with him. Wouldn't you just give anything to have been there like a fly on the wall just to sit and listen to what they talked about that day? What a great conversation they must have had with the Lord. What would you want to talk about with Jesus if you could just sit around the fire and, and, and talk? What questions would you want to ask? You know, why did this happen to me? Why did my loved one have to die? What, what do you want from me? Why do you sometimes seem so far away? Why was my prayer not answered the way I thought it should be? What really happens after we die? Those would be some of my questions. What would your questions be? Maybe you'd want to write some of those questions down for future reflections. What do you want? One of the two was named Andrew. He was the key to Simon Peter's coming to know Christ. The other is unnamed, and it's possible that because of the meticulous detail, I mean, he mentions the exact time the meeting was over, the 10th hour in the original text, which was 4 p.m. 
The unnamed one, it's likely it was John, the author of the gospel. I mean, he rarely mentions himself directly in the gospels. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. The sensitive, kind of amazing man who turned out to be one of the greatest disciples. He knew when the meeting broke up. He remembered the very hour of the day. Why? Maybe because at four o'clock in the afternoon of that day, life became new for him. At four o'clock, he knew when it was when he met Jesus, and that was a life-transforming moment. It could be like that for you. Some folks can point to the exact moment when their life was changed by Christ. Some, like me, I can't point to a specific moment. For me, it was a, a period of time, a period of months. But at some point, there's a realization that the one who has met Jesus is one whose life has been changed. You know, there are people all around us who follow Jesus from a distance, who are kind of checking it out, who don't want anyone to ask them any questions. They don't want to be put on the hot seat. We're just kind of checking it out, want to be anonymous at church, but they're still wondering, is this Jesus real? Is this where I really want to go? Is this the move I want to make? And I want to tell you that that is so great. That's the way most of us start. Jesus doesn't leave anyone to seek on their own. He meets us more than halfway. He says to all of us, what do you want? What are you seeking? What is heavy on your heart? Things you maybe can't say out loud to anyone. What's the, what's the vacuum in your life today? Jesus asks us that. What do you want? And then he gives that beautiful invitation, come and see. Come with me. Allow me to move alongside of you. And for you to move alongside of me through this life, to discover your purpose and to discover my peace, to discover direction in your life, to find help in a hurting world. Let's move together. That same invitation is given to everyone who even those who follow at a distance. Come closer. Come closer. Maybe you'll remember today as the time when you met Jesus in a life-transforming way. Maybe you want to pause this audio for just a second just to think about that. And we'll continue with verse 40 in just a sec. Okay, going on to verse 40. Let me read. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? 
you will see greater things than that. And he then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, how does a baseball manager put together a winning team? How does a business executive put together a stellar sales force? What kind of person do you go to when you've got an important job that needs to be done? You look for proven performers, high-capacity people with outstanding track records, people who have already shown that they're high-energy producers, highly skilled, highly motivated, highly recommended. You go for the cream of the crop. We're beginning to look at how Jesus pulled together his team, his group of followers called disciples. Who would he invest himself in for the time that he had? Who would be these ones who would ultimately carry on the work and carry his message to the world? This is so important because they were his only strategy for the spread of the gospel. Jesus never wrote down any of his own teachings. So if they didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. So which people he picked was such an important decision. And you know what? Jesus didn't put this group together the way common sense would tell us to do it. They weren't all-stars. His disciples, they were a mongrel group, a mixed bag of misfits of widely different opinions and personalities. Some were strong and forceful. Some were analytical, withdrawn, reflective. Some were even skeptical. Some were religious zealots willing to wage a violent guerrilla war on the Romans, and some were people who collaborated with the hated Romans. He took people from the exact different ends of the political spectrum, and they were all his disciples. Most were from the lower ranks of society. They were not very well educated. They had no proven ability to lead anybody, much less to be the ones who would reach the world. Their resumes really didn't match up with the job. They wouldn't have made it on Indeed. But Jesus saw in them what he sees in everyone, what he sees in all of us this this day, that there's more to you than you even know when Christ gets a hold of your life. There's more to you than you even know when Christ gets a hold of your life. That's a wabi-sabi point number two for this episode. The very first disciple is Andrew. We don't really know much about him except he had several very attractive qualities. One, he was willing to be the first disciple, and yet he was willing to take second place. Usually he's identified only as Simon Peter's brother. Now think about that. I mean, some of us grew up that way. You grew up in homes that way. You got your identity from someone else. I was always Kim and Karen's little brother. I had a high-achieving older brother and sister. They were president of this, academic honors, involved in everything, sports, music, student government. All the teachers knew my brother and sister. Maybe you got your identity that way. You're so-and-so's brother, wife, sister, son, daughter, husband. How hard that it is to always be lumped with someone else. Some parents kind of lay that on their kids. They say, why can't you be like your older brother? That's a heavy thing to lay on a child. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration. Andrew wasn't there. He wasn't invited. He's not in the Garden of Gethsemane, not around in those special times with Jesus, not in the inner circle. But he was the first disciple, and he's the one who brought Peter in. He could have said, hey, I was here first. What about me? I should be part of that inner gang. I should be one of the big three. So easy for people to feel slighted. They didn't notice me. They didn't appreciate me. They didn't give me the strokes I deserve. 
People are so tender these days, so bruised, so easily offended, so quick to feel a hurt. There wasn't any of that in Andrew. Somehow he had learned to live with himself. He had learned to be comfortable with himself. He recognized his gifts as a supporting player, and it wasn't necessary for his personal peace and his personal well-being for him to be center stage. He quietly served the Lord, and that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when a person recognizes his or her gifts are supportive gifts, not the highly visible gifts. There's a special place in the body of Christ for those who are supportive people, people who are not up front talking, teaching, carrying on, telling bad jokes, but quietly serving God, just willing to plug away day in and day out, doing what they can to reach out to a few folks around them, just kind of loving them in Jesus' name, and that was Andrew. Number two, Andrew always put himself in a position to bring people to Jesus. The three primary times he is mentioned in the Gospels, he is bringing someone to Jesus. First, it's Peter, his brother. What a difference that made over the long haul. And then he brings a little boy with five barley loaves and three small fish to Jesus. That's in chapter 6. And we'll see the key role he plays in the feeding of the 5,000 because he's often overlooked then. And then in chapter 12, he brings a whole bunch of Greek people to Jesus. He's the first person to cross the racial barrier, to think about bringing those outside the Jewish heritage to Jesus. He was the first to cross racial barriers and to bring people to him. That's what he did best, bring people to Jesus. That's the bumper sticker of his life. A true evangelistic heart in the most healthy use of that word. He carried most of all that people meet Jesus and he put himself on the line to see that happen. What an example to us. Should be our main motivation in life. If you love someone, you're proud of him or her, you want to share that person with others. Is this something that you want to do with Jesus? To be able to say, this is what Jesus means to me. And then allow people to pursue it or not to pursue it. Andrew never argued with anyone, never forced anyone. There was uh, There's a very brief mention of Andrew's brother, who was named Simon. It says Jesus looked at him. Well, that's actually a very strong Greek word, to, to look at him. It's not just a surface. It's to look all the way down to the core of his being, sort of like a spiritual x-ray. This rough-edged Galilean fisherman felt Jesus's eyes kind of boring into him. And Jesus saw the potential in him, saw the intensity. You're Simon. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Cephas, which meant the rock in the Aramaic language, which was the common language spoken by Jesus and his disciples. And then we're told we're given the Greek word because the gospel was written in Greek. The Greek word for rock, which is Petros, like the word petrified. You could say Simon's real nickname was now Rocky. Pretty cool nickname. But why change his name? This is one of those strange things that happens often in the Bible. We see this a lot in the Old Testament. Usually the name change is accompanied by a change in a person's relationship with God. Abram became Abraham in Genesis 17. Jacob became Israel in Genesis 32. In all these cases, it has to do with having a new start or a new beginning, a new relationship with God. Jesus, in that same Jewish tradition, is changing Simon's name to Cephas, to Peter. And that took some vision because Peter didn't look like a rock. 
He was hardly ready to be leader of the pack. Remember how he vacillated. He's the one who, at the time of the crucifixion, openly denies knowing Jesus. Jesus saw not what Peter was. He saw what he could become. And that's Wabi Sabi number three. Jesus sees not what we are, but what we can become. As Pastor Tim Keller is fond of saying, the gospel is come as you are, but not stay as you are. Jesus sees that in all of us today, too, there's more to you than you even know when Christ gets a hold of your life. He sees tremendous potential in our lives. It's hard for us to grasp that. We may feel like, you know, we don't look too great. We're not that special. We wonder, you know, what could I do? The Lord sees that we have a tremendous amount of potential if we could just lay it before him. Maybe not up front, but there's a powerful expression of the gospel to come through your life if you'll let God do it. Then we hear about another new disciple named Philip. Maybe Andrew and Philip said, hey, Jesus, we know this other guy. His name is Philip. Go pick him up. Well, Jesus goes, and probably their encounter was not as abrupt as it's described in Scripture. We get no details on this one. Jesus says, follow me, and Peter, or I mean, Philip just gets up. I'm sure they spent some time talking, unless Jesus was like this powerful guy just comes up and hypnotizes him, says, follow me. No, probably not. One of the interesting things we do know about Philip is that he knew the scriptures. He was a student of the Old Testament who was ready for the Messiah to come. He was able to recognize in Jesus the fulfillment of all his study and prayer and hopes. Right away in his enthusiasm, Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, says, Nate, Look, we found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Right away, all his Bible knowledge sort of kicked into high gear. And all those pieces kind of just fell into place. He says, you've been studying, Nate. Time to get your nose out of the books. He's here. Now, Nathaniel has an interesting response. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, he's really letting the air out of Philip's tires. What a spoiler. If I'm enthusiastic about something, I really want others to be enthusiastic about it too. You tell a joke, you think it's really funny, and the other person just sits there like a lump. That's a bad experience that has never happened to me. You see a great movie, you, you tell a friend, you got to see it, and then later you say, how'd you like it? And they say, yeah, it was okay. Well, you feel let down. What good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a city roughly 55 miles north of Jerusalem. It just had a bad reputation, sort of just always seen as the wrong side of the tracks. Some Bible scholars believe that Nathaniel or that Nazareth was Nathaniel's hometown. And boy, how often do you hear that? Nothing to do in this town, nothing good about here at all. Folks who are down on the place where they live, they're negative, they're skeptical. Think about it. If he came from Nazareth, Nathaniel was saying, well, he's no good either because he came from there. When you run into people like that, who are just kind of negative and sour and cynical, I mean, they're all over the place, right? You've got several options. You can argue, try to convince them, you know, which never really works. You can get angry, maybe silence them, but that doesn't change their hearts or minds. What Philip chooses was a beautiful move. He refused to argue, didn't let himself be dragged into Nathaniel's kind of emotional quicksand. He simply gave an open invitation. He just said, come and see. Come and see. Same words Jesus used with Andrew. Maybe Philip 
turned away initially and said, okay, if that's how you feel, but then he shoots one back over his shoulder. Come and see. Nathaniel is eaten up by curiosity, goes along with him, probably mumbling all the way. I don't know why I'm doing this. Dumbest thing I've ever done. Always finding these kooks. What a waste of my time. Nathaniel is not mentioned in any other gospel. And there's that name thing again. Jesus changes his, his name too to Bartholomew. This total cynic, this guy who was totally negative, like the sour, sarcastic attitude of all the late night comics. Almost a whine in his voice, a dark cloud over his head. Most of us would have written him off, but he was curious, and Jesus saw Nathaniel coming and said something before Nathaniel could even open his mouth. Jesus preempted his cynicism. He said, See the one coming here. No guile in him, not two faced. He's an honest, straight shooter. He's cynical, skeptical, yeah, not a fun guy to have at parties, but he's an honest guy, no guile. Nate resists that skeptical guy that he is. How do you know me to make that kind of a judgment about me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, I knew what you were thinking. I saw you under the fig tree. Now here we have to get back a little bit into Jesus's culture. In the Middle East, a fig tree was a place where people kind of went for privacy. With its big, broad leaves, people could sit kind of inside the tree where no one could see you. And Nate's a student. We know that. He studied scripture. He was a devout man. He was really in touch with God, even though he was kind of a cynic. I think what Jesus means here is, Nate, I heard what you were saying this morning in your prayers. I know where your heart really is. And there was something about the way Jesus said it that convinced Nate that Jesus did know him through and through. And so Nate gives this beautiful declaration. Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and it comes from the lips of the cynic who becomes convinced. A cynic who came and saw, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. When a person gets close to Jesus, this is what happens. Seems like Jesus really knows me, knows where I am. What really moves people is when they have a chance to see Jesus Christ for who he really is. See him through the scripture, not the stereotypes, not churchianity, but the real deal. To see him and experience his touch upon their lives. As followers of Jesus, our primary responsibility is to be like Philip, to do what he did. Get people just within sight of Jesus so he can make his move in their lives. And you just got to get out of the way. So Jesus can say, I saw you. I know you. I saw you in your office. I saw you in your home. I saw you in your car. I saw you in the middle of the night. I saw you in your loneliness and in your need. And I would like for you to follow me as one of my disciples. Jesus sees each one of us as we are, and while knowing all that, he invites us to follow him. This passage ends with another odd statement by Jesus. You shall see heaven, and op heaven open and see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Greater things are coming than Jesus being able to read his thoughts under the fig tree. Here Jesus is referring to a famous Old Testament story that might not be that familiar to us. It's found in Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. It's about another skeptic and rebel named Jacob. 
Jacob had refused to believe in God's promises, had held out on the fulfillment of all that God wanted him to be. In fact, Jacob is a liar and he's a cheat. He is not in sync with God at all. But one night he's out in the wilderness. He lies, lies down to sleep, puts his head on a rock for a pillow, and he has this wild dream. And if you sleep outside with your head on a rock, you're bound to produce some crazy dreams or at least get a sore neck. But Jacob has this dream that we call Jacob's Ladder. And you know that song, we are climbing Jacob's Ladder, sort of a dippy song. I was never really sure what it was all about. But Jacob has this vision of these angels running up and down between earth and heaven. Nate knew all about that story. And Jesus knew he knew. What Jesus is saying is that Jesus himself is going to become that ladder which joins God with humanity. Jacob may have had a dream of this ladder with angels ascending and descending, but Jesus will be the one, the actual one who joins, who unites people with God. And so this is actually the first claim Jesus made of his divinity. It's often overlooked. There are other more popular statements in John, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I and the Father are one. But this is his first claim. This is his chosen way of introducing himself. I am the latter, attached in heaven and attached to earth. I'm the one who joins the two. Nathaniel calls him the son of God. You know, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. He loved to call himself son of man more than any other title. Those two terms refer to his own deity and refer to how Jesus identified with humanity. Son of God and Son of Man. He is the ladder that unites us to God for all eternity. And so remember, Jesus asks, what do you want? And then he invites you to come and see. Remember, there's more to you than you will ever know. And remember, Jesus sees more in you than you do, even in the skeptics. Have a great week.